0: text that's guaranteed to bring the yuletide cheer. Luke chapter 4 beginning with verse, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3 beginning with verse 7. John the Baptist said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Hanukkah. Y- Tide cheer to each of you. I'm, I'm sorry. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. And be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Pray with me. Lord, like John the Baptist, we want to prepare the way. We want to make room for you here in our midst, in our daily lives, in our community, in our church, in our city, in our world. We want to make a home for you, so Lord, we just pray that you would give us the grace today to figure out what it means to prepare such space, uh, to figure out what it means to be obedient in the way that you call us now to make way for you and for your arrival. We welcome you, and we pray even so, come Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can grab a seat. If I were you, I would be thinking to myself couple of weeks out from Christmas. Can he not just talk about sweet baby Jesus? <laughs> and in fact, I do plan to talk about sweet baby Jesus. I'm doing the Christmas Eve services, the 27th for that matter, so there'll be time for that. But one of the things I really love about the Advent readings for this year, these last couple weeks, they have taken us to John the Baptist, which might on the surface seem like a strange move, especially since, you know, this is while John's proclaiming these things as an adult. So Jesus is not a baby here. And yet at the same time, there's this clear parallel between the way John is this figure who prepares the way for the Messiah and the way that we prepare the way for him now. Uh, Advent really is all about creating space for God, making room for God to come. And there are some ways that it's, uh, there there are similarities. I think there's parallels always with how God comes in any time, in any place. So I think these are very appropriate texts, albeit uh, apocalyptic ones, which to me makes sense because... um, I just really believe we're living in apocalyptic times. Let me ask this, even not just as a rhetorical question. You can respond out loud if you want to. Do you look around the world these days, and do you ever just get really freaked out? Like, do you just get freaked out at all? I'm the only one who does this? Like, no, I'm cool. World's fine. I'm good. What's your problem, preacher? I got the joy of the Lord. Um, I do get freaked out. And I do feel like in many ways, it, uh, I, I just. I think it is an apocalyptic time, which is not to say that, I don't know, everybody's gonna be raptured in a few days, I don't have charts and graphs or whatever, Um, but I think apocalyptic time is always a a, a time of judgment and a time of unveiling, Um, and I really feel like what's happening right now is that part of the reason that the world looks so different to us is that we're looking at a world right now where the ax has already been laid to the root of the tree, so these giant structures, these enormous Oak-like, deep-rooted, the trees that we thought would never topple, like societal pillars. Things in culture, things in American culture that we thought were so strong and so unshakable seemed to be shaken. Things that we thought could not fall are falling. And we're looking all around us and we're watching this happen. There's something about it, I think, that's just fundamentally disorienting when you look out and you see... That the trees that seem so rooted and secure, the only things you thought for sure you could count on, now are being uprooted. Actually, just last night I was thinking, I hadn't thought about this in years. I was still a kid when Hurricane Hugo came to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is one of the weirdest hurricanes ever. I mean, we're four hours from the coast, and I mean, we were, it just devastated the city. I mean, everything shut down for two weeks. We didn't have power for two weeks. It was really a terrible storm. I'm not from, like, tornado country like we are in here, so I was not used to any of that. And I just remember not only how terrified I was the night before, uh, having this memory of me with my mom and dad and grandmother huddled in the bathroom, just, you know, you could just hear trees just twisting. You could tell things. But just At one point it sounded like there was chainsaws everywhere. It was just the scariest thing. But I remember particularly going out that next morning, and looking in the front yard where we had this one tree that was just... And it wasn't a big house, nothing fancy, but we had this one really beautiful tree in the front yard that just kind of, I don't know, it was the most distinguishing thing about the property. It was big, it was so wide. And I just remember what it looked like to see that tree completely uprooted. I mean, like the, there's a trench six feet deep. You could see all the roots. It was just completely pulled up. And it looked like that all over the neighborhood. Of course, that could, you know, if it had fallen a little more another way, it had have been right in the house, all of that. I just remember what a, a kind of disorienting thing it was to look at that tree completely uprooted. There's just something about that. It's just unsettling. And I think right now, as the ax is being laid to the root of the tree, even if some of the things that are toppling need to topple, even if some of the things that are shaking need to be shaken, doesn't mean that it's comforting to watch it. <laughs> It doesn't, doesn't make me feel any better to see, right? It's still, it's still strange. It's still very much a different world. And I can't help but think that there's a kind of judgment in that. Um, I want to be cautious in how I say that because the, the further I go in this thing at least, I think about judgment very differently than I used to. I don't think that God is short-timbered. I don't think God has an attitude problem. I don't think it's about, you know, God gets to a certain point and he's just fed up and he says, all right, kids, I'm not gonna take any more. And then he unleashes. I really think that what judgment looks like is that we simply reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. And and because judgment is always a time when our hearts are being revealed, much of what's happening right now, doesn't it feel like, honestly, in recent years, that, that it feel, that we have taken giant steps backward in race relations in this country? I mean, you think it feels like we're, we're regressing right now. I don't think so much something has changed so much as what has really been in our hearts for a long, a long time is being revealed. The way that we've treated our neighbors, the indifference that we have to those who suffer and are oppressed, the violence that has been in us all along, when the pressure gets turned up, all of that starts to be revealed and exposed. It's not new material. It's just stuff that in this press that we're in right now starts to come to the surface. Paul says the wages of sin is death. My reading of that is that the consequences of sin are intrinsic to the sin or intrinsic to the action. So it's, it, it's, it's reaping what we're sowing. In other words, it's not that God is so angry that he's chasing us around to teach us a lesson. You know, we're, we're reaping what we sow, what we have sown in violence, what we've sown in prejudice, what we've sown in injustice and inequality and lack of care for those who are on the margins. Those things we are reaping now. And it's not pleasant, it's disturbing, it's disorienting to see the trees being plucked up. No, it's not, it, this isn't encouraging for anybody, it's hard to watch sometimes. I even think right now, I, I don't have a political rant for today, I'm uh, doing my very best to be in good Christmas behavior, but I think oftentimes, even our politicians, right, even when we say we, we don't like what we see, in reality, they're, they're such projections of us. We made them, we created them, you get that Right? We're living in a world very much that we've created. We didn't know that's what we were creating, but we we've been making the world the way that it is. That's just how it goes. So in many ways, I think what happens with judgment is God allows us to just sort of stare down the consequences of that. That's not the whole story. I mean, this text even is actually I know it felt a little funny at the end, right, when John's talking about Him coming with the winnowing fork and separating wheat and chaff. And John kept on proclaiming the good news to everyone. But it is good news because implicit in this is the opportunity to repent. You know, Advent is about how God interrupts that cycle of cause and effect with grace. God interrupts that. So God is not the karma police who's going around making sure that everybody gets what they deserve, Quite the opposite, God is the one who interrupts that cycle of getting what we deserve, and and offers us grace. In the meantime, though, I'm not to get myself too off track. The trees are being plucked up, things that were once very ordered and would seem strong and unshakable are being shaken, which begs the question that the crowd asked John the Baptist here: What shall we do? What are we going to do about this? I, I want you to hear that with, um, with a degree of, of, of pain and confusion in that question because I think it's there. They're pricked when they hear these things. From where they're standing, because their own hearts are being revealed, because they're having to come to, uh, to, to terms with seeing what is really in them the way judgment always does, this doesn't sound like good news, that one is coming who will baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. Fire? Fire? Ooh, who is this person? I'm not ready for that. What are we going to do about this? And I feel like that's kind of the question we're asking corporately and individually right now. What are we to do? And so especially in this season of Advent, um, reading the responses, and I've never preached on this text, by the way, but that's, again, stuff I love about the lectionary. It takes you places you wouldn't necessarily go. I'm amazed at how clear, how concise um, John's responses are here. Um, there there are real answers to this question. What should we do? In this apocalyptic time when everything's been shaken up and all of these structures and systems are toppling, God's very clear about what he wants us to do. It's not ambiguous at all. It's not vague. He's very, very specific. Can we go back to the text just one more time? I want us to look just a couple of those verses. This is right after the people ask, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, now there, there are three instructions here. Note each of these. First, John says, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. So this is not a, what we might think of as a spiritual charge. He's not asking anybody to pray more. He's not asking anybody to fast. He's not anybody to increase their quiet time, up the ante on spiritual disciplines. If you have two coats, give one to somebody who doesn't have any. Just that simple. And the next, the tax collectors who are coming to be baptized. These are people who are of Jewish ethnic uh, descent. Uh, They're religiously Jews even by heritage, but they're considered sellouts because now they're working for the Roman government, collecting money from their own people, and famously they would take not just money for Caesar, which would be enough to make them hated, they would keep some for themselves. They're coming to be baptized too, and they're raising the question, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. And then finally, one more category of people, the third instruction. Soldiers also ask him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. The thing that strikes me as being most clear and consistent in each of these instructions is that everything, that everything that John gives us here is essentially economic. It's essentially economic. One of the things that surprised me most, reading the prophets of the Old Testament, the older I get, I don't know, I used to think of prophets as people who were sort of generally crusading against our naughtiness, you know what I'm saying? Who just trying to get people to, to think less naughty thoughts and do less naughty things, clean up your act. But specifically, what you get most often through the prophets is the call of God that comes up from the margins, that tells people who have been in this sort of comfortable place in the middle ground that judgment is coming, but largely because of how we have treated the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, those who are poor and needy among you, A way of saying, God's not happy with this. God's not happy with your sabbaths. He's not happy with your new new moons and your festivals. He didn't ask you for a sacrifice. He wants mercy. That's what we get over and over again through the prophets, is the God who's not looking for sacrifice, but he's looking for mercy. Jesus will repeat that, but he's not the first one to say it. That is the whole prophetic tradition. And when John the Baptist comes now as a prophet in this very apocalyptic time, when the ax is being laid to the root of the tree and everything is in this kind of upheaval, this is the instruction that he's giving. Those of you that have two coats, give one to someone who has none. Those of you who have been stealing money, stop doing that. Those of you who have been bullying and intimidating you soldiers to try to extort money for yourself, stop doing that. Be satisfied with only what you need. Let what you have be enough. Instead of always feeling like you need to get more, incredibly consistent, and to be honest with you, almost too practical, I felt myself almost floundering in the first service in this way exactly because I think it's just my preacher way to try to turn this into a broader principle. Right? Let's just talk, you know, about whatever things it might be that God wants you to lay down. the truth is, it's uncomfortably specific. <laughs> Don't keep so much stuff. Give some of your stuff away. Don't take more than you need. And I don't want to say it like that, right? Because I want to like soften that. Not for you, for me. <laughs> right? Like it's it's fundamentally uncomfortable. Let's just turn it into a spiritual. What are the things in your heart that maybe you... Oh, I just hit a nerve right there because that, that's the evangelical business, isn't it? Perhaps... Perhaps there's something in your heart that you're holding on to that you might need to yield. It's way too, it's like way too plain to say, you need to give away more of your stuff. You need to share your money. You need to stop trying so hard to wrangle to try to get more than you need. That is just, that, you know, that's just, that's just too plain. But that's John the Baptist for you. And that's a John the Baptist Christmas right there. That's the the John the Baptist Christmas special. (laughs) Give away more of your stuff. Stop trying to take more than you need. You know, that, that's like, that, is, that is the whole message. Now, the truth of that is, it's actually a profoundly spiritual message. Because what we cling on to, how we relate to our stuff and our money, has everything to do with how our souls are ordered. We don't want that to be true, because we want to be able to do whatever we want with our stuff and our money, but make Jesus the Lord of our hearts. Isn't that Right? Isn't that a great idea? He's Lord in my heart. Oh, good. That's great. But I love him. I feel When we sing this morning, when we were singing those beautiful Christmas songs, I feel warm, happy Jesus thoughts and Jesus feelings. That's great. Good. Now, let go of some of your stuff. (laughs) Share with somebody else. Stop taking more than you need. There's something very profound about that because I think what the prophets always get and what John the Baptist here gets in particular is that how we relate to our stuff and our money absolutely will order everything that's happening in here. And sometimes, believe it or not, I, I don't know if I like how this sounds, but I think this is right when it comes to stuff like this. This isn't the territory where you need to make some kind of a profound inward change first. And after you're sure your motives are pure and you've laid down everything in your heart that you need to, then perhaps you might give and whatever. This actually does work the other way around. This act, Sometimes you have to let go of some things, share first, give first, and then that will start to change what's happening in here. There are some things that do involve some kind of an external act of obedience to order our own hearts. John doesn't say a bit here about what happens in their heart. I just, that just I think that's too touchy-feely for John. I don't think he cares about what anybody feels. What he's saying is God's not happy with the way this society is ordered. God is not okay with all of this inequality. We looked at it last week. God is coming to bring the mountains down and to exalt the valleys. He's not happy with this as it is. You can do something about it. And then he tells us what to do. Which, for me, actually, for as much as this might sound a little heavy, I don't mean it to be too fire and brimstone. Actually, right now, for me, this feels strangely clarifying in a way that's really helpful because, especially in this kind of apocalyptic time when so much is shifting and changing, I don't know about you, but I find all of it to be so overwhelming. When you see this much pain in the world, when you see this much hopelessness in the world, then, of of course, for, for most of us, I think the thought becomes, who am i to do anything that could possibly make a difference in light of any of that and we just get paralyzed are you aware of the fact that we are taking in more information than anyone in the history of the world ever has it's it's really scary how even as a young person as a digital native somebody now by 20 or 25 will take in like centuries worth of information As the world was ordered before, like constant technology, constant accessibility, therefore, we're given this nonstop stream of information that we can't do anything about. So, we're on a constant information overload. We know something about poverty in India. We know about AIDS in Africa. We know about Syrian refugees. We know about our own homeless. We know about all these issues around the world. We know about war, rumors of war. We, 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 we're, we, we have a pipeline to them all the time. All this stuff that we know about, but we can't do anything about. We just get overstimulated. And I feel like that is a unique cultural phenomenon right now, is that we're just getting inundated with all the information and instead of becoming wiser, instead of becoming smarter, we're, we're just backlogged with it. You kind of get underneath it. And then you stop asking questions like, what should we do? Because it just feels so hopeless. Is, it, is that making sense to anybody? I feel like this all the time. What can I do that could possibly make a dent in all of that, right? Goodness. I wish I could make more of a difference. I really mean that. I mean, I know I'm, and I'm on a stage preaching But I feel like everything that I do feels so small in contrast with all the hurt in the world. It's like, what am I even doing? How could it possibly make a difference? That's what, for me, is so beautiful about how specific and particular John's instructions are to each of these groups. It's like, it's not global. It's not overwhelming. John isn't giving them all this hype language about changing the world. John isn't talking about... Changing the culture. John is talking in much more practical terms than that. Okay, so some of you have two coats. Give one of them away. Those of you who are tax collectors, stop taking more than you need. Those of you who are soldiers, stop extorting money. So instead of these broad, big, universal things, it comes down to these very simple, very practical matters that have implications for my daily life. Are you tracking with me right here? but I can't do this, that, and the other. Okay, cool. John doesn't want to talk to us about all the things that we can't do. What can you do? What has God placed in your hands? What do you have extra of? What do you have that you could part with and still have enough of what you need? What, what is it that you can do to stop grasping and to let go in a way that cares for someone else in these very plain Practical, pragmatic terms. In just a few minutes, Pastor Brent will come back up and we'll receive our offering for the Advent Conspiracy, specifically again this year for Charity Water. We don't have enough money or influence within the church to provide everybody with clean water. But we have enough to make a difference in a village somewhere, a family, a one individual within this church can do something that will make a difference for an individual or for a family in Africa right now, does it have to be extravagant? It's just simply a matter of you taking whatever God's placed in your hand and being willing to share instead of grasping, instead of being so overwhelmed by the sheer size and scope of everything happening out there and putting your hands there and saying, well, there's nothing I can do about this. That's my issue, by the way, with so much of our, because, you know, again, I talk about apocalyptic times, But that's my issue with so much of our kind of apocalyptic escapism I see in a lot of churches like I grew up in. It becomes this sense of like, well, it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. God's going to burn it all down. So I'm glad that's not my problem. This is never how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is established through small acts of obedience and faithfulness. We have to stop thinking in such big, exorbitant terms and thinking a little bit more practically about what we have in our own hands that we can do, and making it just that simple. I hope this is okay to say. Somebody, I, I love when I, <laughs> is it great when I say that? And like then I just. I hope this is okay. <laughs> Somebody reminded me between services that went to ORU, which ORU is this fabulous school. We have all these ORU people, but he was telling me about how you know the kind of the campus motto is the whole thing about you know think no small thoughts here. Which, by the way, I think sounds great, and I get that. I think so much of what even happened to faith movement was, you know, a bit of a correction towards, you know, this notion that God cannot move in tangible ways in the world now. But this is what he said to me. He said, I found that over the years, I had this vision when I was younger, and I went to school and went to seminary, where I thought God had wired me to do all these big things. And now all these dreams and visions that I had of making all these global changes, thinking no small thoughts, none of that stuff has come to pass. And what it feels like in my life right now is that God is working, but I'm not, none of it's happening on a spectacular scale. And I struggle now with this sense of condemnation and guilt, because even when I try to be obedient with what God has put in my own hands, it feels like it's too small. It feels like it's not enough. And I just really feel like this morning, truly, I I felt oppressed from the Holy Spirit for this service, that I need to lean in on this, that some of you right now, you just labor under that all the time. Like there's this constant sense that you're not doing enough, not because that's what God says, but because you have this sense from wherever you got it, whoever placed it on you, that somehow what you're doing is not big enough and not spectacular enough. When the fact of the matter is the kingdom of God is always made known in really small acts of service, tiny acts of compassion. And if God wants to take that and to turn it into something larger, then that's, that's wonderful. Everything that we do for Jesus is part of something larger, right? It's all part of the broader story of the church. But quite honestly, I just think so. For a lot of us, there's too much pressure on the individual Christian to do great things. I love that rhetoric. I have preached those sermons a thousand times, trying to tell people to do great things for God, right? It sounds good. There's a time and a place for that, et cetera. But I'm just seeing now how so often that unintentionally becomes a kind of bondage for people where, where God, God, God puts things in their hands and all he's asking is do something good with what I have given you to do. Do something with what I have placed in your hands. And then people go around feeling terrible about themselves because, hey, look, can I, <laughs> this sounds really funny to say. I don't know why they're me so funny right now. <laughs> you know, If you have two coats and you give one, that may not start the global last days revival, right? (laughs) That may not start a chain event. Like, I totally get that, right? That one event, and I get it. You can back off a little bit, get some perspective, and say, well, really, if I don't give my coat, I'm just one person, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's a sense in which that's true. Yes, the kingdom of God again is comprised of all these small acts. That's where we're trusting in a story that's so much larger than our own. But I don't know how to put this. It's like it it matters, there's weight and there's significance to it, but we can't have this sense that too much rides on us. Ironically, because they're again. Now I know that sounds weird. Because here's a sermon where I guess the idea, right, is to motivate you to do these things because they matter in the world. So you're saying now too much, not too much rides on me. Yes, because if you think too much is riding on you, you won't do anything at all. That's a problem. That becomes paralyzing. If you think too much is on your shoulders, man, I feel like every youth event I ever went to when I was a teenager was always about taking your school back for Jesus. I've known some fantastic teenagers in my life. I have not known one who actually went and took their school for Jesus. I'm not saying there's not this rare, like, Billy Graham wonder kid, 15 years old, who does whatever. I'm just saying it normally doesn't happen quite that way. I mean, like, gracious, 15, I remember what I was like. I couldn't figure out which turtleneck and fuzzy sweater to wear. I couldn't figure out how to deal with my acne, much less how to take my school for Jesus, right? So then what happens in all that? Then when you, don't, when you feel like you don't know how to take your school for Christ and you don't know how to bring some kind of massive revival, then it feels like, well, maybe I can't do anything. Maybe I don't have anything good to bring here, right? Because th- that those little interactions that in, in terms of how you love your friends, you don't see those things as having weight and value because they don't turn the world upside down. You know what I'm saying? There are so many people in this church who are in the medical profession in some form, nurses, doctors, et cetera. It would be awesome if this was the week when you went in and all of a sudden you started laying hands on people in their hospital beds and they started jumping up and the Tulsa World runs a story in the next week about how there's mass healing in the hospital. I believe God can do that. He's not beyond it. I'm just saying that's not how it happens most of the time. What actually happens is that through 80 hours of serving people who largely don't appreciate you, there might be one or two connections that are really significant that create some kind of leverage in another person's life that makes a difference. Which seems kind of depressing sometimes. And yet there is this way that if we're faithful in these small things that God has given us, That he's the one who's responsible then to water those seeds. He's the one who's responsible to actually make the change. See, that for me is what's so profound about all this. John's not telling them, go out and change the world. Trust God to do that part. You just give away your coat. You just let go of some of your stuff. You just don't cling on so tightly and give what you have to give. And trust God with the big global cosmic change. That part's not up to you. That's above your pay grade and above my pay grade, right? I, I really do want to keep this simple because I do think it's a fundamentally simple message. And I want to just to kind of bring it full circle, while there are a lot of implications, I want to keep it today about this thing. What has God placed in your hands? What is it that you have to give? Instead of bargaining and bartering to make it into something else. I'm an expert with making bargains with God. I've been doing it all my life. My great aunt passed away early this year And she used to delight to tell people as an adult these stories about me about how, like, she would take me on these little outings and she would take me to the toy store and she'd give me a certain amount of dollars, give me $5, $10, or whatever. And how one day in particular, this was during the era of He Man, that I had found a He Man action figure that was outside the allotted price range. And so she comes, she looked away for a minute and she comes and discovers that I'm now at the desk talking to the clerk and saying, Excuse me, sir, can I negotiate a price? (laughs) I was five. like and this is this is my skill set this is what i do with the lord so i'm i'm speaking from a place of experience here that when it when it gets too clear when it becomes too plain when it becomes let go of some of your stuff give what you have in your hands then i just start going into well you know i give a lot of other things <laughs> there's this other stuff that i do there's other things i'm willing to yield can we talk about something else and I just think there's something about um, this apocalyptic time that we're in that that calls on us to not bargain or barter, but to like to be really plain and really honest with what we have in our hands. What what do you have in your hands? What can you do with it that can make a difference? And I'm not telling you like uh, some of these televangelists, you know, um, to run up all sorts of new debt by paying ties on your credit card or whatever. I'm not talking about any of that. But I do think there's something in your hands that's tangible that God wants you to do something with. And I believe that not only is this what God will use for him to change the world, because God uses that, the raw material, the fuel that comes from small acts of obedience, not only do I believe that God will use that, the beautiful thing is this is actually what God uses to liberate us. This is how God sets us free. I wish I could have seen it this way before, that when, I, when, when God asks us to do things like this, there's always this sense, isn't it, of, oh, you just don't want me to have fun, Or what if I don't have enough? What about me? What about my needs, Jesus? Right. This is always where it goes. If we could get in our heads that this is not punitive, but this is the God who liberates. God is the God of Exodus. He's the God who's always setting people free. The stuff that He asks us to do in terms of letting go and easing up our our grasp on our things and yielding and giving and sharing is for the sake of liberating our own souls. He wants us to be free. And there's no way that we can be free unless we're willing to let go, unless we're willing to part with some things, some stuff. While I do think this has profound implications for the offering that we'll take up in a few minutes, it's not just about that, because God forbid that this ever becomes just about what we do here in the church. Who are the people in your lives that you know, neighbors, family, friends, who are just in need of something really practical you could do for them right now, something really practical you could give to them right now? Those are the kind of questions that God wants to bring to bear in a moment like this. I'm recapping one more time. It's an apocalyptic season where the trees are being uprooted and the world looks really strange. We get panicked, we get overwhelmed. What shall we do? What shall we do? And I love how this morning, I just think the still small voice of the Holy Spirit would say, I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> stop, stop being overwhelmed. Stop being so paralyzed. And just open yourself up to the Spirit in this way. What has God placed in your own hands? What, what, what is the difference you can make with something small that God has given to you to do? What would it look like for you to share rather than to hoard? That's what this is about. Stand with me if you would. In just a moment, we're gonna to come to the table. And one of the things I love most about coming to the table in a moment like this, we're talking about giving and sharing and yielding. And I think this is so important, is that before we're asked to give anything, Before we're asked to go out the door and to part with something that we are holding on to, first, God gives us the Eucharist. I think that's such a big deal. Isn't it interesting, at least it feels like this to me, how the table preaches a different sermon every week. It just always changes. I think the message for us today is God always provides for us. We have this bread. We have this wine, which I always say poetically, even though we use grape juice. We we have this provision. God has provided for us. Here's a meal. God offers that to us freely. Now, as God supplies our need, he looks to us to go out and be provision for someone else so that we can learn how to give the Eucharist in the same way that we receive it today. We love him because he first loved us, because he's given so much to us. Now we in turn go and we give. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.00 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.